after the war the daughters of the confederacy couldn't remember where he was buried but we're remembering him today it's general ed johnson and his biographer greg clemmer on civil war talk radio for the people in our military it's a time of sacrifice and duty that's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family it's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Greg Klemmer, author of a biography of General Ed Johnson, Confederate general, not well-remembered, but one with an interesting story nevertheless. In our first segment, we talked about the a little bit about the nature of biography, especially for figures that have not been the subject of multiple treatments over the years and the uh, uh, excitement of digging in remote places for sources on uh, a figure like Johnson. Uh, Greg, this biography you've written is, uh, we'll take a look here and give the exact number, seven, uh, 697, 89, so it's in the 700s, in the low 700. It's a big book, although the print is large and the margins are generous, and I can read it without my glasses on, which I really enjoy. Um, that, that can't be said of many books. So although it's big, uh, listeners don't be daunted by it. It reads quickly. It's uh, entertainingly written. And it is, uh, as you suggested in our first segment, it's not uh, just uh, 50 pages about the pre-war life and 50 of the post-war and 600 pages of mind-numbing detail about every battle, but Rather, you've, you've looked at Johnson as a whole person, at, at his whole life, um, starting with his college, or I guess pre-college, uh, prep school. Uh, where did he go to school? He went to a little college in Ohio, starting off uh, Kenyon College uh, in central Ohio. I have not been to Kenyon College, but I've contacted the people there and managed to, to unearth some of the details of his, his uh, 
career there, but he, he got an appointment to go to West Point and was in the class starting off in, in 1833. It took Ed um, five years to get through West Point's four-year curriculum. And, of course, when I, I saw the record that he was in the class of 1838, I realized there's probably a story here. There is. And um, I can go into the details of that if you want, Jerry, but uh, it's, it's, the more you dig on this guy, the more you keep finding. And you touched in the last segment um, about the, the other sources, the people who come in contact with him, men and women. He ends up being such a peculiar, odd, fascinating type of person that's going to leave some kind of impression on just about anybody that those people that did encounter him leave all of these vast nicknames behind as well as several hundred incidents about him. Not all that I used in the book, but you, you touched on all these crazy names he had. One of the, 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 I guess my favorite, is from a letter from Ted Barclay during the war. He was in the 4th Virginia from Lexington, Virginia, a Stonewall Brigade. And this is post-Chancellorsville. Jackson is dead now. And Johnson is coming back. He's, he's recovered from his wound at McDowell from the year before, in which, he, which he will set out just about a year. And Ted Barkley's writing home to the folks back in Lexington, and he's saying that General Johnson is a good general and a brave man, but one of the wickedest men I ever heard of. And that just seized my imagination. Jubal Early is considered to me the most profane man in uh, Robert E. Lee's army. I would suggest that uh, Johnson is a very close second. And while um, Johnson never married, and I've not been able to find any children, unlike, unlike uh, Jubal Early, who was also uh, never married, but um, a good portion of the town of Lynchburg, Virginia, claims direct kinship to him. <laughs> and uh, I can say that on talk radio, too. Uh, Johnson doesn't have any direct descendants, and that's one reason that he does become obscure. He has this bad career move in 1873 when he dies during Reconstruction. The South is still um, recovering, rebuilding. He uh, lays in state in the Virginia State Capitol, and he is buried on the very day that his friend Ulysses Grant is inaugurated to his second term, March the 4th, 1873. Um, he is obscure. His grave has been lost in Hollywood Cemetery. Some of your readers or some of your listeners might think, uh, well, gee, I've seen a stone to him there when I visited Hollywood. Read the fine print on that stone. It was erected after World War II, and it says, essentially, it's in the uh, Confederate officers section uh, down the hill from Jeb Stewart, and it says, in this cemetery lie the last mortal remains of. I've done some digging, not literally, uh, <laughs> on this subject, and he is buried in Section O. The two separate uh, contemporary newspaper accounts that say Johnson was buried in Section O. And Section O is still there, still designated, has not changed. And it's up near the big stone um, pyramid to the Confederate troops, very near Pickett, where Pickett's interred, and where the, the, uh, the return Gettysburg dead were brought back in, uh, in the late 1860s. So he's near... He went in one last time with his boys, if I can use a slight pun on, on, on your program. Ah, well, he, and, and uh, so we know we've, we've got him in the right cemetery, and, and uh, those who read the book will know exactly. You can uh, walk around and know you're very close. The other little tip is that he is buried in a steel or an iron burial case. Um, that was, was a wonderful little diary of a young man who was 15 uh, who was fascinated by Richmond's senior confederate. Uh, passing from the scene, and this is 1873, 
he has very few memories of the war, but this was a big deal. It was a dead winter cold, and he goes up and describes the, the scene there in the Virginia State Capitol, Johnson's grave, the, the, his casket is, is on a bier, um, the casket is open, it's in the shadow of Houdon's statue of George Washington, which is still there, and he describes Johnson's two, two Mexican presentation swords that are crossed on the dead general's chest. It was quite a, quite a moving thing to find that citation. Well, that referred certainly to his pre-war service in Mexico. And I wanted to ask about some of the things he did before the Civil War. Uh, you mentioned, of course, West Point, uh, where it took him a while, but he, he made it through uh, in five years. He then, uh, uh, it, it, in some ways, he almost seems to have a, a gift for being where the next interesting thing is happening, although he's not necessarily in the midst of it. Uh, but he he played a role in the Seminole War and in the uh, the relocation of the Cherokee, the Trail of Tears. Yes. Uh, so he, he, he you've already mentioned the the, the the Grattan massacre. Later, he will express sympathy for the Indians there, or, or justice perhaps uh, that it wasn't their fault. Uh, does he develop this sense of, of uh, fairness to the Indian plight uh, from his experience in the Trail of Tears? I think you've touched on something, Jerry. Um, there is there was. Um Authors have this this little sixth sense that we listen to. I won't I won't say it's a voice, but uh, when I had wrapped up this book, I thought I had wrapped it up. There was a there was a voice saying, "You're not finished with this, Greg. You're, you haven't finished this book yet." And I knew that my chapter right before the war, when Johnson is in California and has established Fort Weller, this is 1859. I knew that it was thin. I had not been to Sacramento. Um, and yet, this little voice said, "You need to go, and you need to go to California, or you need to get into those California archives." There's something they just didn't set him up out there and put him in that fort. Well, this was the, the Sacramento archives, state of California archives, were really coming online about that time. So I went online and I started doing some digging, and I found a whole rash of Johnson letters, all official, nothing, nothing personal, about his time in California. And I said, "I've got to see these." Well, it was cheaper to order them than to fly to, to Sacramento. So I ordered the letters, got them in. It was a gold mine. Johnson was involved in trying to protect the Digger Indians from the whites uh, and the whites from the Digger Indians up in the um, Mendocino area where he built, built uh, this Fort Weller. Fort Weller was the, the first governor of California. And I've discovered uh, in a very sordid chapter of American history that... Uh, there was outright genocide going on to exterminate the Digger Indians on behalf of the California government, and it involved Chief Justice of the, of the California Supreme Court Hastings, as well as some hired uh, guns, so to speak. And Johnson really got into a, a brouhaha with this uh, Captain Jarbo. I searched hard and low for a for a photograph of him. He was a hired gun meant to go in, and they would. They would run these Indians into these cabins and set them on fire. Um, people will say, what are, what are these Digger Indians you're talking about? They were very primitive. They do not exist in Northern California anymore. They're gone. The whites succeeded. And Johnson is trying to fight this. He's trying to referee it back and forth. His hands are tied. He's a brevet major. He has to fight the War Department 3,000 miles away. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got to drink of water here. He um, is worried about what's going on back in Virginia. 
And John Brown has his raid, and the next thing I know, here's Johnson being ordered back east. So the chapter is left undone as far as what Johnson can do, but under the disguise of, under the guise of uh, war between the states back east, California went ahead. And if there's somebody in California, they need to dig into this very sordid chapter in American history and find out the rest of the story up there. I've documented at least a dozen of these house burnings where there are five, six, eight people in a house. Um, they were being relocated, moved. Um, it's in that chapter. I think it's chapter 16 in the book. Take what I've written. Take those documents that I've cited, and there's, there's, the rest of the story is still out there. It hasn't been told. Wow. Well, now, in addition then to being involved with the, uh, so you've got Granton's massacre for for one Indian involvement. You've got uh, the Digger Indians. You've got the, uh, the Seminole War. You've got the Trail of Tears. Uh, I I do want to ask you about the Mexican War and and those presentation charts sure. you mentioned. But at the same time, uh, we could get through this whole uh, discussion and never actually get to. The Civil War. Uh, the Civil War, which, which is what we're here to do. <laughs> I know. Um, when the war breaks out, uh, you give your view on why Johnson makes his decision to go uh, with the state of Virginia and not with the United States of America. How do, you, how do you see him making that decision? He went very, very late into that decision. He officially left the United States Service, which he had served 25 years with, by the way. So if you want to give balance to your program, maybe maybe one-fourth of, of your time on this hour should be to the Civil War. Um, Johnson, um, there's, a, there's a story out there that Johnson was actually doubted for his loyalty to the United States and was imprisoned. Um, I, he, was, he was stationed uh, in Governor's Island in, in New York. Um, I could not find any documentation to that at all. But what I did find, uh, Johnson went into the city, and he had a private probably a requested interview with one of the Mexican War um, heroes, uh, General Wool, who was still in the Army at that time, uh, very senior. And something in that interview, there's no text to it, but something in that interview convinced Johnson to do the honorable thing. And yet he had to make up his own, own mind. And the next I can find, and I cannot trail him from New York to Richmond, the next thing I know, he's in Richmond, and it's about... Uh, the 5th or 6th of, of July, and he is, is looking for a command. And a lot of the commands have been handed out at that point. Um, that's another reason he ends up with just being a colonel to people who were being awarded a star who were very junior to him in their career at West Point, uh, most notable being Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a, a lot of confusion in that time about how Johnson went, but the reason he went... Um, I think I found that in, in a toast that he gave when he came back from the Mexican War. Um, they had, uh, Johnson came back fairly early, he had an eye disease that would develop into this lifelong eye tick that Mary Chestnut and others uh, have chronically limbed about in his, uh, shall we say, peculiar physiognomy. He was the one that had that receding forehead that went on in Everton next week. Um, but he, he in, in one of the Washington papers, in one of the Richmond papers at the time, uh, around New Year's of 1847-48, uh, there is this gigantic party. Uh, the heroes from the war back, um, uh, and Johnson is, is one of the early ones to return, and they record all of these toasts that they have. And, of course, there are like 77 of these toasts. And, of course, as you go down the page, they're more and more loquacious and longer. But one of Johnson's early on in the evening was this. 
to Virginia, where I go, whatever realms I see, my heart untrammeled still returns to thee. I think that pretty much sums it up. Lee uh, essentially went with his home state, and a lot of officers followed Lee's example, not knowing precisely who Lee was at that time, except from his reputation as a colonel in the 2nd Cavalry. But um, men reached down deep. Um, the Civil War, of course, has been styled uh, before the war it was the United States are. And then after the Civil War, it became the United States is. We were still state-based going into the 1860s. When we came out, um, the government had changed, and the states were frankly subordinated to what Washington was going to do. It was the evolution of our country, which continues to evolve to this day. Now, if if he was going for his state, uh, which is Virginia, how did he end up with a Georgia command? Ask Jefferson Davis. I don't mean to be facetious. Um, he comes to Richmond uh, in July. A lot of the commands have been handed out. Jefferson Davis really didn't like him. And the um, the volunteers that came up from the Peach State really had, uh, they were mostly green soldiers, um, summer soldiers for that matter. A lot of them thought this was going to be a 90-day summertime lark up in the Virginia mountains, and they were going home. Um, Johnson gets cobbled together with this command, and... Uh, it was Jefferson Davis who picked him out, and I think part of it goes back to his negative impression of um, this upstart who dare question the War Department in Richmond from a distance of 2,500 miles out of Wyoming, or the territory of Wyoming. So once he gets his command, uh, where is Johnson's first action? He's going to go out to western Virginia, um, go beyond the Shenandoah Valley into the Allegheny Mountains. Now we get to one of the key words in the book, Old Allegheny. Uh, there's going to be a battle, uh, part of Lee's cheap mountain campaign, which will be um, a fiasco of very, very green troops, horrible weather. Uh, one of the diarists said that in the month of August it rained 32 days. It was rain, misery, mud, and mountains the whole time. Um, on the 3rd of October, there's a little affair down at Bartow, West Virginia, called the Battle of the Greenbrier. It's a little place called Bartow today. Essentially an artillery match. Um, Johnson is is um, there. Henry Jackson is in command. He will be a, a political general coming out of, out of Georgia. But Johnson was the experienced hand. And after that battle, men realized that they had a real general who knew how to fight. Uh, one of the quotes that, that, that came out of that battle, uh, Johnson was, was somewhat... Um, not, not quite sure how the men were going to take this, but, but one of the men that looked up said that uh, Colonel Johnson, this is the day after the battle, Colonel Johnson sent the enemy word that he had buried their dead and that he would bury the rest of them if they would just come down off the mountain and oblige. Uh, well, with that uh, stirring uh, peroration, we'll take another short break here. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 